after the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea, they were told to set up a large mound of stones. And they were told that in the years ahead, when you pass by, your children will say to you, what does that mean? Why are those stones set up there? And it was to be, they were told it was to be a memorial. And they could tell their children, this is what it means. This is where God delivered us from the Egyptians and opened the Red Sea. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, a remembrance of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, I should say. Last week, we were reminded that Nehemiah was a man of the word. He knew the word, he believed the word, and he lived it out. He lived it out in his life and in his ministry. Before getting into Nehemiah chapter 2, I want us to pause here and think about the importance of being men and women of the word. You know, the foundation for every movement of God in history has been sola scriptura. It's been scripture alone. The Bible is the foundation. God has spoken his word to you and me. He has proclaimed his truth. It reveals God himself in his word. He has revealed himself, so to speak. So it's the foundation for every movement. Back in the summer, I quoted from Acts chapter 17 where it says the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with great eagerness. They were hungry for the word of God. But it also says they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. The things that were being talked about was what Paul and Silas in that context were preaching. And so these people were commended not just for being hungry for the word of God, yes, for that, but also for the fact that they searched the word of God to see if what Paul and Silas were saying was true. They went back to the Old Testament scriptures. That was the word of God that they had, that they were familiar with. God had spoken, and they looked to God's word. If we at, here at Cornerstone are to be a Christ-centered church from beginning to end, to be blessed by God, it will be because we're a church that stands on the word of God. God has spoken, and we need to stand on the truth of his word. We need to believe it from beginning to end, from start to finish, in other words. Everything that we do, everything that we believe, the way we do things as a church should all be founded on the principle and teaching of the word of God. Now, this foundation applies to us as individuals, and certainly it applies to us as a church. So I want us to go back to a scripture that we just touched on last week. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to spend our time there today. You can turn to it. The scriptures will be up on the screen, many of them in, at least, and all of the ones from Psalm chapter 1. And here we see... The psalmist is contrasting the godly with the wicked. And it's quite a contrast. Notice, first of all, the pronouncement of blessing. He says in verse 1, 
blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Or it could be translated like this. How blessed is the man. The word blessed or blessedness, as some people like to translate it, is actually in the plural. And so Spurgeon refers to this as the blessednesses of the man and says, all the blessednesses of the man. That's how he translates it. Now, some scriptures translate this or some translations translate it as happy. And I can understand why they do that. But today, happiness as we generally refer to it, is based on circumstances. We speak of ourselves as being happy when things are going well and unhappy when things are not going well. But this is much more like joy. It's what we as believers have, regardless of our circumstances, because God is the real source of blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul refers to our God and Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. See, every blessing, spiritual blessing, comes from God himself. So the psalmist writes of the blessed man. Adam Clark describes the blessed man like this. That man, that one among a thousand, who lives for the accomplishment of the end for which God created him. That's the blessed man. What, what has God created us for? To glorify him. And the man that lives with the glory of God in mind, that's his desire, that's his purpose, is the blessed man. Notice the prerequisite of blessing in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist begins with the negative first. What the blessed man does not do, it's really an issue of repentance, isn't it? And repentance is a supernatural change of mind that results in a change of direction, a change of lifestyle. It involves a change of the mind, the heart, and the will. Really, it's the other side of saving faith. It's often been described salvation being or faith being like a coin with two sides, faith being one side and repentance being the other. This is true biblical separation from the world. True believers are ultimately not like the world. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. It's supernatural. This is the work of God. It's not some righteousness that we have of our own, not something that makes us appear good before others, but it's the supernatural work of God that changes a man. This is what the blessed man is not, we find in verse 1 of Psalm 1. He says, who does not walk, or walks not, I should say, in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked, the Hebrew word here means a criminal or a guilty one. So this is a person, this blessed man is one that doesn't walk in the counsel, the advice of the wicked. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 12, the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. You see, following the advice, the counsel of the wicked leads to deception. 
The blessed man does not walk in the advice of the wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't stand there. He doesn't abide. He doesn't remain in the path of sinners. The path being figurative here, the course of life, the way we live. And sinner is a little bit different than the word wicked. It means an offender. The blessed man refuses the sinner's course in life. He refuses sinful living. Solomon wrote this again, Proverbs 4, Proverbs chapter 4 this time. Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not into the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn from it and pass on. In other words, get away from it with everything inside of you. Turn away from it. Run from it. Get away from evil. Do not walk in the path of sinners or don't stand i should say in the path of sinners and then thirdly nor sits in the seat of scoffers to sit means to dwell to inhabit to remain and that word can even be translated to judge and a scoffer the word literally means to make mouths at we would say today to mouth off that's the idea of that particular Hebrew word. But it's really to scoff, to mock, or to scorn. The blessed man does not put himself in the seat of the scoffer. He refuses to mock God, to mock holiness, or even holy people. The blessed man has a reverence towards the things of God. Now, notice as you look through these three things that's listed by the psalmist here, that there's a spiritual degeneration. First, he's walking. Then he stops and he's standing. And then he sits down. Because sin is progressive. You know, a man or a woman doesn't fall into sin. That's a misnomer. He steps into sin one step at a time. That's how we get into sin till we get to the place that we're recognized as being in sin. But it's after taking many little steps that get us there because sin is indeed progressive. So in summary, thus far, the blessed man does not identify with the wicked or adopt their advice, their ungodly behavior or their attitudes. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Folks, we need to be salt and light to the world around us, but we never must allow the darkness or corruption of the lost to influence us. Steve Lawson wrote, our boat must be in the water but no water must be in our boats. You see, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In Psalm 1, the psalmist warns that the blessed man does not do certain things. He's not a part of certain kind of thinking, of certain kind of behavior. But then in verse 2, he turns to the positive, stating what the blessed man is known for. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
that word delight refers to the person's pleasure, his or her desire, what he loves, where he spends his time. It's what he delights in. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And the word meditate means to murmur, to ponder. It's the idea, you've heard of a, chow, a, cow, a cow chewing its cud, where it regurgitates the food and chews it again. He's getting everything, all the nutrition out of it that he possibly can. That's the idea here to ponder, to meditate on the word of God. The blessed man delights in the law of God. You know, the only scriptures, as far as we know, that the psalmist had was the Torah. And yet he saturates his mind and his heart in God's word. The word of God is the blessed man's affection, his appetite, it's his hunger. He's never satisfied without it. He feels hungry without the word of God. Steve Lawson writes, or actually said, if there was ever a man that was an example of the blessed man in church history, it was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was converted at 21 years of age. And from that moment, he began to study the Bible on his knees praying over every word of scripture that was open before him. Arnold Gallimore, in his biography of Whitfield, writes this. We can visualize Whitfield at five in the morning in his room above Harris's bookstore. He is on his knees with his Bible, his Greek New Testament, and a volume of Matthew, Matthew Henry spread before him. And with intense concentration, he reads the portion in English. He studies the words and tenses in the Greek and then considers Henry's exposition of the whole until finally he prayed over every line, every word, feasting his mind and his heart on the word of God. Whitfield himself said this, if we once get above our Bibles and seek making the word of God our sole rule, we are open to all matter of delusion and are in great danger of making shipwreck of our faith. Spurgeon referred to Whitfield as a walking Bible. Spurgeon said when he preached, the Bible flowed from his mouth. As a result of Whitfield's devotion to the Word of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about him. Other men nearly existed. Whitfield lived because he was a man of the Word. Notice the blessed man meditates on God's Word day and night. He ponders it. He meditates upon it. He replays it in his heart. He thinks through the passage day and night. This is exactly what Martin Luther was doing when he was studying Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that really changed the course of history in many respects. He was reading it. The just shall live by faith. The righteous one shall live by faith. And he realized that righteousness can never be earned, but that it's a gift of God through faith. That man must be indeed born again. You see, everything that we believe, everything that we do as a church should be based upon the word of God. It is our faith 
and our practice because it is the word of God. It has stood the test of time, so to speak. It has proven itself. Do you know how many men and women have opened the word of God to disprove this book and later come to realize that this indeed is the word of the living God and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the word of God. God has spoken. It's our foundation. Everything must stem from this book. I want you to notice thirdly the picture of the blessed man in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. This word planted, and this might be debated, but it's the same word for planted or transplanted in the Hebrew. So let's just assume for a minute, he is like a tree transplanted by the streams of water. Now imagine the deserts in Israel. The context for much of the writing of the Psalms. In the deserts, there are these secluded places. They're simply an oasis. It's a place where right in the middle of a desert, where the land is dry and thirsty, there's no life, there's nothing, a spring comes up and a stream. And around that water, there is life. There's an oasis in the middle of a desert in Israel on the screen. Adjacent to these streams of life, vegetation is growing. You can imagine it. Birds are singing. Animals are coming for a drink. There's trees, bushes, vines, grass, all kinds of life. These places are literally an oasis. The blessed man is described as being, I would say, transplanted out of the desert, out of a dry and thirsty land to one of those streams of water. It's happened by the new birth. God is the one that's taken the man out of the desert and placed him by the streams of water where he can grow, where he can thrive, where he can produce fruit. We are transplanted by God's streams when we drink of the truth of the word of God. We drink from the living word so that we might know the living God, because that's what it's all about. Actually, the word streams here can refer same word again, translated reels or rivulets, small channels that people dig to get water from those streams out into the dry areas to irrigate a tree or, I mean, Israel's doing this in major form today in these desert places. They're coming to life. And it's amazing some of the things that can be done. And there's another slide, if you would put it up. You can see an example here where someone has dug a small channel. It's not, it's not uh, filled with water at this moment, but they've used it to take the water, what's called living water, moving water in the Bible is living water because moving water brings life. Stale water is stagnant and can produce death in many cases. It's often filled with toxins and contaminants, 
even in the desert. So they would bring this water and use it to irrigate, so to speak. And that could be at least the idea. And the reason I bring this up is because God has given us the living water. He's given us the truth of the word of God. And it's our responsibility to get it out into the desert, out into the world. God has called us as a church, in other words, to be evangelist. And thank God he's gifted people here for that purpose. But we all have a part to take the word of God and get it to people, to find those people that God has already made thirsty for the living water. We have to get the water to those people. We have to get the word to people that they might believe and be saved, that God would change their lives. And so what's the purpose again for being transported or transplanted to this living water? It's to know the God of the word, to have our spiritual thirst quenched that by or through the source of life, we can grow and thrive and produce spiritual fruit. It's not some academic pursuit. The purpose of knowing the word and studying the word and meditating on the word is not an academic pursuit. It's not just so that we can have knowledge. Again, it's so that we can know the God of the word the one that really gives life. He has spoken, and we must listen to what he has to say. You know, the word of God is sufficient. It's all we need as a church. We don't need anything else. It's sufficient. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. God's the source. It's given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed and is, and is profitable for doctrine that's what we should believe. Reproof is correcting wrong belief. For correction is correcting wrong living, and instruction in righteousness is teaching right living or holy living. That the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient. It's all that we need as a church. It's all that we need as individuals. But yet we sometimes so neglected. And I often think about people, and I've seen, I've read about people in these countries where they are blessed to have a copy of one book or one passage, and they read over it, and they share it with one another. They love it. They memorize it. It's precious to them. And we have all the oracles of God right here. And we neglect it. We act like it doesn't matter, but it matters. It's all that we need. As individuals, it's all that we need as a church. When we delight in God's word, pondering it day and night, notice what happens in verse 3. That's, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, then in all that he does, he prospers. First, that yields its fruit in its season. When maturity comes, fruit comes. We could talk about this for a long time, but first and foremost, I would say the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the kind of fruit that's produced by God in a person's life. That's a man of the Word. It's the... It's, 
knowing God. It's the Spirit of God living in us. But we also have responsibilities to know the Word and to be fed and feasting on the Word of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is one fruit, but it has all those characteristics. It's not fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so it produces, first and foremost, love, a love for God and a love for one another. It's the very evidence of being born again, born from above. And we see this in 1 John. The Bible also talks about the fruit of our lips. That is praise to God, as we saw in Hebrews 13, 5. And the fruit of a Christian also leads eventually, just as in nature, fruit produces new life. When we are changed, God uses that to draw people to himself. But above all, this whole process is supernatural. This is growth that cannot be explained naturally. Producing fruit that cannot be explained by earthly means. The blessed man is blessed by God. He feasts on the word of God. He thrives on the word of God. And its, its leaf does not wither as well. He may grow at times. He may not grow the same all the time, but he never dries up and dies because he's blessed by God. He has the spirit of God living in him. The blessed man is an evergreen tree, so to speak, because he has eternal life. In all that he does, he prospers. This word prosper means to accomplish or fulfill the purpose, purpose for which something is made. What is our ultimate purpose again? It's to glorify God. The blessed man has spiritual blessings. He has blessings that money can't buy. They're far more valuable than anything money can buy. He has blessings that death does not take away. In all that he does, he prospers. He prospers spiritually. Now notice in verse 4 the contrast with the wicked, the wicked man. And in verse 4, a prohibition concerning blessing. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. That first phrase, the wicked are not so, in the Hebrew text says, not so the wicked. In both Greek and Hebrew, what's being emphasized is placed first. It's called the emphatic position. It's like highlighting it by placing it first. Not so the wicked, God says. So think of it this way, and I think it brings clarity. The blessed man delights in the word of the Lord, not so the wicked. The blessed man ponders God's word day and night, not so the wicked. The blessed man is a thriving, evergreen tree, not so the wicked. The blessed man produces spiritual fruit, not so the wicked. The blessed man prospers spiritually, not so the wicked. 
The wicked may look good on the outside, but they're rotten on the inside. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like whited tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Not so the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Farmers in Israel and many parts of the Middle East and around the world for that matter, when they historically would harvest their grain, they would make a threshing floor on a high hill. They would throw the grain and the chaff up in the air on a windy day and the chaff would blow away and it would be gone. It would decay. It would turn back to dirt. The wind would blow the chaff away and nothing would be left but the good grain. The wicked man is like the chaff that the wind drives away. Not so the wicked. Verse 5 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Barnes in his notes writes, The meaning is that they would not share the lot of the righteous in all places and at all times where character is determined and where the divine estimate of human character is manifested. It would be found that they could not stand the trial or abide the result so as to have a place with the righteous. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Again, we see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked man, the blessed man and the wicked man. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word knows does not mean God knows about them. It's not stating the obvious that God's omniscient. We know that God knows everything. Rather, it speaks of relationship. He knows them. He knows their way. He knows the way of the righteous. He cares for them. He instructs them. He knows them as a kinsman. God knows the righteous intimately with care and instruction. He knows their way. He knows their course of life. And they're called the righteous. The word means just. A righteous man. It's not talking about self-righteousness. For we know if we're honest before God, who we are apart from Christ. We know that we are the wicked, all of us. For all have sinned and all continually fall short of God's glorious standard. Every single one of us. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us. The only righteousness we have is God's righteousness that's given to us through Jesus Christ. And that's what we stand. The man that's righteous in this context here is a man that's righteous by God. He has the righteousness of God given to him. Looking way back, Paul wrote, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him 
for righteousness. Abraham didn't have any righteousness of his own. He wasn't better than everybody else, but God through faith made him righteous. He was righteous by the power of God. It was a work of God, and he couldn't take any credit for it, nor did he want to. The blessed man is a man that's righteous because God has made him righteous. He has the very righteousness of Jesus Christ accredited to him. In conclusion, this is a psalm, a psalter, a song to be sung by the people of God. But think about it. Many people that sung this song at the temple in Israel years later were the wicked. They didn't know God. And I would suggest today, there's many people in churches singing songs just like this today that sadly are the wicked. They've never been transplanted by the streams of living water. And if you are lost today, if you've never been born from above, born again, a heavenly birth, You are the wicked man of Psalm chapter 1. That's who we all were before salvation. God says, not so the wicked. Here today, gone tomorrow. Gone to perish in eternal judgment. If you've never had a heavenly birth, you're still in your sins. You are condemned before God. You're not the blessed man. You do not have spiritual blessings. God says, not so the wicked. Only Christ can take a, bless, a wicked man and transplant him into the streams of water and give him life. Only God. And that's why we look to him. We come to that place in our lives that we realize that, yes, indeed, I am a sinner. Folks, I know who I am. I know who I was before Christ in my heart. But I know what God can do. God saves to the uttermost. And it's all him. I can't take, I don't want any credit for it. I know who deserves the credit for what he's done in my life. And I know if you're saved today, who deserves the credit for what he's done in your life? Folks, Jesus left the glories of heaven and came to a sin-cursed world. He fully kept the law. He was perfect. God is a holy God. The Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly holy, even in his walk here on this earth. Perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. And when we see him in his perfect holiness, our only response should be that of Isaiah when he saw the Lord in the temple high and lifted up. And he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Oh, that we would see God in his holiness, who he is. We're so busy today comparing ourselves to one another. And we think, well, I'm okay because that person's worse than I am. Stop doing that and compare yourself before God and you will see who you are. That's what Isaiah did. Then Isaiah was reminded of his own sinfulness. When he saw God in his glory, he realized his condition. He did not measure up before God. 
And he cried out, Woe is me, for I am cut off, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, that we would see him and realize who we are. We are the wicked man. God says, not so the wicked, but the God that we serve. You know, this book from beginning to end is about the story of redemption. It's what God does in the life of a man who in faith trusts him, who looks to him for salvation. He went to the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ did, and bore our sins. Paul says, and he, God, made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how we're made righteous. That's how we become the blessed man. It's in Christ and him alone. The children of Israel living in the desert, they didn't like how things were going, and they began to complain and murmur against God. God sent snakes to bite them, and the people were dying. Then the people went to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. And God told Moses, to take a brazen serpent and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten, all he has to do is look. He's really an issue of believing God, believing God and looking. That was God's remedy, looking to the serpent on the pole and be healed from the snake bite, from the serpent bite. 1,400 years later, Jesus told Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, Jesus Christ was lifted up on a cross, and those that look to him are saved. The Bible says, quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Folks, it's all about what God can do in a person's life that looks to him in faith. It's all a work of God. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water, water that I will give him will never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You want the water of life. God has revealed it through his word. It's through the word of God that we know the living God. For those of us this morning that know the Lord, if you've been born again, the word of God is our source of truth. Can I challenge you this morning? Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Hide it in your hearts. Live it, obey it, ponder it, spend time in it, invest in its truths, teach it to your families, share it with your neighbors. Everything stems from sola scriptura.
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It all stems from Scripture alone. We don't need popes, church tradition, creeds, councils to know what to believe. God has spoken. If we are going to prosper spiritually, we must look to the Word of God. Everything that we need as a church here at Cornerstone to be a blessed church by God is right here. We don't need, let's say it like this, the success of our church is not based on programs, youth groups, the education, personalities, or abilities of its leaders, or because our people have it all together. The success of any church is based on the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has chosen to use vessels like you and me. Vessels that he shaped and molded for his own purpose. Our responsibility is to obey the head. And God has revealed him right here. God has spoken through his word. May we be like the psalmist. May we be like the blessed man that meditates, that loves, that feasts on the word of God. Folks, God has spoken. Are we listening? Let's pray.